Our text today is from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So please, can you turn there now? And if you happen to be reading from an electronic device, I'll be using the new King James Version. And uh, I just want to warn you, we're going to be flipping through a lot of text a bit later, and I suggest that you don't try to keep up or your pages may catch fire. I'd rather you just follow the thought through on the overheads that will be behind me. Before we begin to read, we'll need to make a very general summary of this chapter. And the reason for that is that today's text begins with the word, therefore. Therefore, there surely must have been an earlier argument made, and it leads us into the proposition we're going to look at today. And we mustn't separate the argument and the proposition, because one absolutely depends on the other, and so our learning will be very wrong if we don't consider them together. First question, what is chapter 4 about then? Well, most broadly, it is about continuing to do the work of the gospel in the face of strong opposition. Let's drill into that a bit further. In verses 1 to 6, we read that the importance of the ministry given to Paul by God is what gives him the heart to carry on, although many around him are accusing him of deceit, and many of those will just not listen because they have been blinded by Satan. But this doesn't stop Paul, though. His desire continues to be the gospel light shining into darkness. In verses 7 to 12, Paul acknowledges that he is continually experiencing many kinds of strong pressure from outside elements, and that includes even mortal danger. On top of that is the inevitable deterioration of his body. Yet despite all these difficulties, he presses on for Jesus' sake, so that the world can see Christ revealed through him. Verses 13 to 15 are another explanation to his readers of why he sticks at his task despite all these trials. He reminds them that faith must lead to action. Belief in Christ and speaking about that belief are things that cannot be separated. And this is so important that even if such speech leads to death, Paul is determined to continue the mission because no matter what happens, he knows in his heart that he will have eternal life in Christ. And that's true for us as well. That leaves us with verses 16 to 18, which are both a summary and a repetition of what he has written with a little further dollop of encouragement. And since we are yet to read and study them all more closely, I'll just leave it at that for now. So we've covered what came before the therefore, so it won't look like it's just hanging in space. And now we can read on to actually read today's text. And I'm going to read right through from 16 to 18. Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, what is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Back to the very first verse of chapter 4, you would see that it includes the very same words that we have here in verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. So these phrases are like bookends to this chapter. What does that mean? Well, it seems to me that despite things being so hard for him, Paul is still notably hopeful. 
between the repetition of these phrases and the explanation for his perseverance given in between, he is saying, I have not lost hope, I am not losing hope, and I will not lose hope. All three tenses are being covered in chapters 3 and 4, past, present, and future. Now when I think about this phrase here that says losing heart, there are a few pictures that immediately come to my mind. The first is that it means to be stopped completely, dead in one's tracks, hand thrown up in the air, I can't carry on anymore, this is just impossible. The second is that it suggests some form of lack of ability or some kind of personal weakness. I do not have at all the internal strength or courage to carry on against this pressure. So for me to lose heart, it's not, it's not a minor thing, it's a big deal. It's the, it's the consequence of a major irritation. It's the sort of thing that happens to us either when some really enormous thing crops up unexpectedly, or maybe when there's been a lot of problems for a long time, or perhaps for that matter, something vital is missing in a person. If that's the case, how can we create a different outcome? How can we withstand that pressure, or perhaps alternatively heal the weakness? Well, the Greek word used for lose heart here is ekkakio, and it literally means to give in to evil. It's the idea of becoming weary in or tired of doing something and therefore losing motivation to carry on doing good things that ought to be done. Instead, the person becomes faint-hearted or despondent in view of the trial or difficulty. And in fact, its meaning can even be a bit worse. And in some instances, ekkakio refers to abandoning, abandoning oneself to cowardly surrender. So in that case, it's not really a thing to be desired. What can other scriptures tell us about that? Well, given the other five uses, uses of ekakio in the New Testament, we can see that it must be a really important theme because of the topics that it's related to. And the first is prayer, especially the kind that, as we sometimes experience, takes ages to be answered. 18.1 Then he spoke a parable to them, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. The second is tribulations on behalf of the saints. And once again, it's Paul speaking, Ephesians 3.13. I pray, therefore, that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you. They are for your glory. The third and fourth use is in relation to doing good, which is kind of obvious when you think about it, when the meaning is not giving in to evil. Galatians 6.9. So, let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. Now, if you have sharp eyes here, you'll notice that it says here, do not grow weary, and we'll say the, see the same phrase in the next scripture that I'm going to read, but it's the same Greek word, absolutely the same. And so that next um, scripture is 2 Thessalonians 3, 13. Brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right. And our fifth use is in serving, most specifically by preaching the gospel, and it's a text that we've already referred to. Therefore, since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. So in prayer, in facing discouragement because of other Christian sufferings, in doing good, 
and in preaching the gospel in all of these key aspects of our walk as children of God, it is absolutely vital to have a steadfast heart, one that does not give in to evil. Great, I fully agree, Dave. But how on earth do I manage this when I am permanently working in a swamp full of crocodiles and they are constantly snapping at my heels? Life gets real, mate. Well, there are a lot of different answers to that in Scripture, of course, but let's see what Paul says here in verse 16. The first point he makes is that no amount of running or swimming or cycling or special diets is going to do the job. He writes, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. Now these words, even though, show us that losing heart need not be a consequence of the outward man perishing. Paul is still in good spirits despite the inevitable decay of his body. The outer man as it is described here. And those of us who are a little older or maybe a lot older know about perishing very well through personal experience. And that is why many of us, aside from my wonderful wife of course, have started to look a bit like an old tire. Did I really say that from the pulpit? Now, while it is true that not eating 14 pies a day and going for a brisk walk rather than sitting on the couch and watching Shorten Street does slow things down a bit, it is just that. It just slows the rot on the outside. It is not the answer to the problem here. But I must hasten to add that any efforts to stop the perishing here mentioned, well, they do remain worthy because they definitely help us to do the work given to us by the Lord more effectively. Makes sense. If you're fit, you can work harder. So do keep up the battle of the bulge by all means. But if Paul says here the problem of profound weariness of heart cannot be solved by physical means, by press-ups and sit-ups and eating more roughage and fruit and vegetables and less yummy ice cream and pork crackling, well then, how can it be solved? Well, we know that he has already offered up a number of reasons for being steadfast and persevering, but here we see a new one. Renewal. Even though our outer man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Well, that immediately raises a whole bunch of questions for me. What exactly is being renewed? And what does it affect? And is there anything I can do to help? Is it fixing something that was perfect to start with, with but is also wearing out? Or is it alternatively a process of change? Let's see if we can answer some of these questions. Firstly, what is the inner man? Is it the squidgy, smelly bits that only surgeons get to play with? No. In the first instance, just looking at the sentence construction tells us that it is something quite different to our physical body. Inward is the complete opposite of outward. So where do we go for an answer? All scripture, of course, dummy. Paul refers to the inward man in two other places. Romans 7.22 For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. And Ephesians 3.16 For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man. 
These verses tell us that the inner man is a part of us that both delights in God's laws and is a space where the Holy Spirit lives and works. Given that we know that as born, humans are sinners by nature, and therefore we are at odds with God's law and his holy nature, obviously this cannot be a part of us that existed before we came to know Christ as Savior. It must be something new that came along with salvation. In John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And this is the moment when renewal starts, when the believer accepts Jesus as Lord. In that, that very singular instant, God makes them new and perfect again. Not on the outside bit that we can see, but on the inside where the real person lives. Jesus' blood has paid the penalty for their sins, and now the Christian's true self, as seen by God, comes alive, holy like himself, and fit to spend eternity with him. And of course, theologians have a technical term for that. It's called justification, an instantaneous act of grace by God through which a person is made to be just as if they had never sinned. So you can see why Jesus speaks about being born again and why this is a term that believers use to describe this moment for themselves. And this new person that we're talking about is the inner man that Paul is talking about here. So Dave, I have a question. If I'm totally new and so on, then why do I carry on behaving the same? Well, the answer is that because we are still sinners living in a fallen world, the old man remains and he fights constantly with the new. And we all know this because we all struggle with it daily. Even Paul is not immune. He writes in Romans 7.15, a well-known line that describes the reality so perfectly. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. I find these such personal lines. We all know what it's like, don't we? And Paul goes on in verse 21 to further describe the war between the inner and the outer man. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank God indeed, for through Jesus he has saved us from the terrible consequences of our sin. But he has not left it at that, for the third member of the Trinity has been placed within us 
to help us in the continuing work of sanctification, which is defined by our friend, Mr. Grudem, as the progressive work of man and God together that makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ in our actual lives. And Paul explains this in Titus 3. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. There it is right there. An abundance of the Holy Spirit to empower us moment by moment, to renew us moment by moment. Hopefully by now I've explained who the inner man is and I've naturally strayed into the question of what renewal is by way of the verses that I've just quoted. And happily that means that we've also answered the question about whether Paul is talking about renewing something that was perfect to start with but now needs fixing because we've played with it too roughly. No, the answer is that renewal is a gradual process of revealing on the inside <laughs> I've written this wrong. See, renewal is a gradual process of revealing on the outside which is already perfect on the inside. What we call sanctification. The inner man isn't around at all until that moment of salvation but once he or she is there, that's when the fight begins between the old man on the outside and the new on the inside. And God doesn't leave us alone in the battle. Like I said, he gives us the Holy Spirit to lend us strength and to guide us in a path of increasing holiness. Friends, we are not alone. We who are brothers and sisters to Christ are not ever spiritually in the same downward spiral that our bodies experience. God has graciously and powerfully provided a means to gradually and purposefully turn us inside out. Scripture tells us, He who started a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He will. God will. Sovereign, omnipotent God will. And he lives in you through his Holy Spirit. And therefore, like Paul, we can all take heart even when things are really tough. And therefore, we can persevere in the work that the Lord has set aside for us. That brings me to the one question that I don't think I've answered yet. Can we help? Well, yes, we can and we must. Remember that definition of sanctification, the progressive work of man and God together that makes us more and more free from sin and more like Christ in our actual lives. I know it's a thing that doesn't happen very much these days, but I wonder if you have ever had to repair a bicycle tube. Well, if you have, then you'll know what I mean when I say that fixing the tube is the easy part getting the tire off and especially back on is the big problem. Now, if you haven't done this, then let me try to explain. Bicycle tires and car tires, for that matter, have a ring of steel around their inner edge and its purpose is to stop the hole in the middle from stretching so that the tire doesn't come off by itself when we put the brakes on or go around a corner. So that's very good. 
but it isn't so good when you are deliberately trying to stretch that hole to get the tire on or off the rim. It's a swine. You need levers and lubricant and muscle, and it fights you all the way. It would be so nice if that tire was not an inanimate object, but could actively help you by wriggling just a little bit at the right time so it slipped ever so gently into the right position. You know, the journey of sanctification needs that too. The key word in our definition is that word between. It reminds us that properly done, sanctification is a cooperative work between God and man. He will always help. Sometimes it must be said quite forcefully, but he yearns most for our willing and active participation to wriggle ourselves into the right place. So do that, please. Wriggle constantly to seek his will in his word and through prayer. Do the work he has called you to. And between the two of you, it will be ever so easy to do that trick of turning yourself inside out, to be completely renewed, and to never lose heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for one reason or another, I believe that all of us understand the difficulty of demonstrating that inner man to the world. But Lord, as we've discussed and as we read and as we know, your Holy Spirit is with us. And Lord, I pray that we would both turn our ear to what he says and we would use our hand to execute what he says so that we do become that person that you so want us to be, that we help you to, the, to do the work that you have begun in us. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.